Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. All right. Thanks, Mike. As a warning to people, don't sit in the back on days that I forget to find somebody to read Scripture. Or you will be, or on the sides, or I will pick you in the last minute, which I'm not doing great at that. All right, before we get started <clears throat> on rele- relevant topic here, a uh, little family announcement that I was supposed to make last week, but in my defense, she came eight, eight days early, so it should have been this week. But uh, Iris Renee Ofum was born to Katie and Brandon uh, March 6th, 2023, six pounds, 14 ounces. Uh, and we are excited. Isaiah and Ivory welcome a little sister, and so we're excited for Brandon and Katie. And yes, clap, clap. <clears throat> we will have uh, another little one cruising these halls up and down, sprinting as fast as they can for as long as we're here. And then when we find one day another hall to cruise up and down and let little kids run around in, they'll run wild there. So. We're excited uh, to welcome her to her church family. Uh, And speaking of kids, let's have, uh, we do have EGC today, so third, fourth, and fifth grade, we'll follow Miss Lisa, everybody else, I think Miss Stephanie's out there, uh, first and second, not everybody else, but if you're in first or second grade, you can go that way. The rest of us are going to continue on in our series through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' longest collection of teachings and preachings assembled by Matthew in the book of Matthew. And if somebody wants to grab the doors back here, sometimes we get a little loud in here and it disturbs the kids in their study. So we want to make sure to uh, honor that. I want to uh, start this morning by telling you the story <clears throat> of Mewen Sakat. Anybody know him? All right. Mewen was born in Britain. He was born in the late 4th century. Uh, This is probably about 50 years after Constantine had made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire. But young Mewen did not follow his parents' footsteps into Christianity. He held to the old Uh, Roman pagan beliefs and practiced them fervently up until he was about 16 years old. And at 16, Celtic marauders came through his village and kidnapped Mewen from his home and took him back to the island of Ireland, where he was held captive by a druid priest, and he was made to be a goat herder. And it was during this time that Mewen dreamed and saw visions of God and saw the redemption of Jesus and realized that this was his hope. Uh, And so while a slave, Mewen turned his life to Jesus, dedicated his life to Jesus. Uh, And then a vision came to Mewen that uh, he could escape and how to escape. And so he did. And he fled from his captors and went back to Britain and there pursued life and ministry. <clears throat> he became, uh, he pursued monastic practices, 
and uh, would become uh, a bishop and spent 20 years back in Britain. And God began to work on his heart, a desire to go back to the people of Ireland and to proclaim to them the good news of Jesus. And so he pleaded with the church. Now, what you need to understand is, in this day, <coughs> uh, <laughs> well, I guess the Irish had a bit of a reputation. I mean, our Irish have always had a bit of a reputation. But they were seen as, uh, <clears throat> they were seen as barbarians. Um, they were less than human, especially from the Roman perspective. So the church was a bit hesitant, but eventually gave in and sent Maywin back to, uh, not as, not as, this is an important distinction, uh, Maywin did not go as a uh, being sent from the state. He went as a missionary from the church. When the state's official religion became Christianity, we have some tension between being a missionary and being a colonizer. Maywin went as a missionary. His heart for the people of Ireland. And he went, of course, under his new church name in Scottish would have been Padraig, or as we know him today, Patrick. And he went back to the people of Ireland, and he met with the Druid priests, and he knew their language, and he knew their culture, and he knew their beliefs, and he began to convey to them the hope of Jesus. Now, some of his things were a bit... He, this. They weren't like, oh, it's great to see you, Maywin. Uh, tell us what you believe and we'll give our lives to it, right? There was certainly, there was opposition. There were priests and there were magicians that would come against him, that would mock him. And so some of the techniques that we see in his day, probably not techniques that we would necessarily preach in our day. There's a report of one priest coming against Maywin and him praying and the priest falling over dead. Uh, now, these are legends. I don't know how true they are. There's another story of magicians who were mocking the idea of the virgin birth. And when Maywin prayed, uh, when Patrick prayed, the earth opened up and swallowed them. We're not going to necessarily teach these evangelistic techniques, uh, but this is the story of some things that, that uh, potentially took place. But there were other things. Maywin knew the Celtic people. He understood their language. He knew, he knew the words and the phrases that they, <clears throat> that they used. He, he went to them, what's most famous, uh, he went to them and explained the beauty and glory of the Trinity using the shamrock, using the clover. Again, according to legend. Um, he conveyed to them forgiveness because of Christ's sacrifice, not because of sacrificing other things or even potentially other people, and not because of victory and how good you were or how powerful you were, how much land you had, but you could actually belong to God and not have to bribe him and not have to appease him and not have to do rituals to gain his favor. And supposedly, again, according to legend, the first, the first priest to convert to Christianity was, in fact, his master when he was there, his former master. Now, here again, Patrick did not set out to colonize Ireland to simply make it more like Britain. He set out to convey the love and the hope of Jesus to his former captives, captors. In his love for the Celtic people, he would suffer on their behalf. 
Uh, it was said that he slept on the rocks uh, and that he wore rough-haired clothing. There's a mountain. Uh, he would often retreat to pray and plead to God for behalf, on behalf of the Celtic people. And there's a mountain uh, near somewhere in Ireland today that, accor- uh, that according to legend, when you go and you want to follow in the ways of Patrick, you actually climb this mountain barefoot. Nobody's like, oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He believed, he embraced discomfort, and he believed that suffering on behalf of this people, um, he felt called to suffer on their behalf, and he believed that this would offer penance for the conversion of the Celtic people. And of course, as Druid priests were converted, many of the people followed and, and he was actually never officially declared a saint in the Catholic Church. Nobody was till like the 14th century. Never had anything to do with snakes. There never been snakes. That, that wasn't a thing. Um, and, uh, uh, and also when we see pictures of Patrick in our day, those are like 17th, 18th century priestly garb. They would have no idea about that in the 4th century. Just, just so we're all... I have a priest friend that corrects me on all my, my Catholic Church history. Uh, and he's like, well, technically, which I love. Um, and, but he was known as the saint of Ireland, that he brought Jesus and the hope of the gospel to Ireland. And they have celebrated his day, uh, March 17th, the day that he died. They have celebrated uh, his day for centuries, a, a day of feasting for centuries. And in America, we honor this glorious Legacy by getting drunk and turning the Chicago River green. (laughs) Makes sense, right? Um, All right. Last week, what a way to wrap up a beautiful story of (laughs) St. Patrick. God bless us. Last week, we finished up the Beatitudes, uh, and the Beatitudes are this list that Matthew gives um, in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount uh, that records Jesus' teaching on who is blessed in this kingdom of God. When the kingdom of God comes, who are the hurting, the broken, the surrendered, the meek, those who are being persecuted? What is the good news for them? The good news for them is that God's blessing is for them. God's presence is for them. And so Jesus uh, says he is ushering in this kingdom of God, and he gives this list of, of who is blessed in the kingdom of God. And this week we move into this declaration that Jesus gives of being salt of the earth and light of the world. Uh, and so, and here again, I've, I've had a lot of conversations on this. I'm assuming everybody has heard these terms, salt of the earth and, and light of the world. I'm just going to make that assumption that you've probably heard these terms. You've probably heard it referred to Christianity, and there's probably like a, yeah, what does that mean? Ah, you know, salt of the earth, light of the world. All right, so we're just going to try to give it some depth. So here's, the, here's our outline for this, for this morning. First is the declaration. What, what is the declaration being made known? Second is the metaphors of salt and light, and then just some thoughts on what it means to be salt and light. All right, so first, the declaration. It's important to remember the setting here. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's gathered with his disciples, and also Jewish. He's also talking to a Jewish crowd. Matthew is writing to a Jewish crowd, so that stuff is important. But he is, it seems that he is speaking specifically to his disciples and telling them, this is what it's going to mean. This is what it's going to look like to follow me. This is what's in store for you. 
And so he doesn't say everyone is salt and light, but he gives the implication that as you follow me, followers of Jesus, you are salt and light. And this is important for a few reasons. First, um, Jesus says you are salt and light. Now this is, this is actually far more important than we would give credence to to understand. But Jesus doesn't say Jerusalem is salt and light. And he doesn't say Israel is salt and light. That would have been understood. That would have been common teaching. That would have been expected from rabbis in that day. Jerusalem and Israel, this is the symbol of the people of the Torah, the people of the law. The people of the law are salt and light. That was consistent in Jewish tradition and interpretation. But Jesus says, you are salt and light. Jesus, in saying this, those who would follow him would, would become salt and light. What this is saying, Jesus is claiming to be the fulfillment of the Torah. I am the temple. And the fo- those who follow me, you are salt and light. And of course, we go to, uh, if you, if you were, where the woman at the well asks Jesus, um, you know, where would, we, where would we worship? And Jesus says, well, one day there will come where we worship, or where is the temple? And he says, we'll worship in spirit and truth. That he, Jesus is embodying the temple. He's claiming to be the fulfillment of the Torah. So followers of Jesus become the temple of God. They become the presence of God. They become the city on a hill. This is no longer a regional thing. This is no longer a a geographic location. It is now God's presence is with his people. And it's pretty remarkable. The other aspect of this is that Jesus is saying, you are salt and light. So as you are salt and light, then he also says, you are salt and light. He doesn't say, you will become salt and light, or you should be salt and light, but in following Jesus, you are salt and light. You can be ineffective, but you are salt and light. It's not a goal to achieve, It is the truth of God's mission that they need to remember. And it's something that we need to remember as well. Salt and light are not things that we strive to become. They're not evangelistic tactics. They they are who and what followers of Jesus are. It's who you are as a follower of Jesus. It's what we embody. It's what we're made for. Okay? So that's the declaration. Now let's get into this a little bit. And that's not to say, well, okay, so I'm following Jesus, I'm salt and light, don't worry about it. No. It is your identity. You can become useless, and Luke says, tossed on a pile of manure, which we'll get to that. Um, okay. So let's look at the metaphors. Beautiful, beautiful uh, transition there. Salt of the earth and light of the world. So the first he says, you are salt of the earth. Now, this can be translated a couple of different ways. Uh, it can be translated um, salt of the soil, or it can be translated salt of the land, or salt for the land, or for the soil. And salt had a whole lot of uses, and I don't think it's necessary that we narrow them down to just one, uh, although there is one that I think is actually a pretty beautiful picture. Uh, salt was preservation. 
Salt was used to preserve, right? You, they didn't have refrigerators back there. So if you got a nice juicy steak and you wanted to enjoy some beef jerky, you put salt on it, right? That's how you pre preserve. Salt was, a, was used as a preservative. Um, <clears throat> salt was used for flavoring, much like it is today, table salt. Uh, it may not have been as much back then, but certainly uh, it was used. Salt is a purifier. If you've ever had a water softener, salt purifies it, it can be used as a purifier. You get that giant block of salt and you put in there and it, and it purifies the water. Now, they did not have, to my knowledge, water softeners back in this day. You know why? Because hard water, this is total, this doesn't matter at all. Um, but when your brain gets going, you just think of things. Hard water is made by magnesium and calcium that builds up in the water that comes through metal piping. So back then, they used PVC. I'm joking, obviously, it was, it was clay, it was bricks, and so the water was, would have been naturally soft. So, all right, so don't remember that from this morning. That does not matter in any way, shape, or form. Uh, another interesting thought, and this was actually just sent to me this week, and I think I'd heard it before, but, uh, but I, the more that I read on it, the more that was fascinating to me. Um, <clears throat> this, is com this comes from research according to the former... Uh, head of the soils department, who was a follower of Jesus, the former head of the soils department at West Virginia University, who was one of the other teams that messed up my brackets this week by losing to Maryland. But whatever, we won't hold that against him. He did extensive research showing what ancient Palestinian salt was actually used for. Ancient, uh, ancient Palestinian salt was actually used for fertilizer. Now, how many of you have heard, like, salting the fields is a form of, like, weaponry where you salt the fields and nothing grows, right? Um, there's probably elements of that that are true. I, I don't know. But salt in the ancient world, especially in the Middle East, was actually used as a fertilizer and was very important. And I think it's because the region of the world is different, so we don't use salt as fertilizer. This is, this is uh, from an article. It says, salt was used in arid places to help soil retain moisture. It destroys weeds, and it makes stubborn soils easier to till. It makes sour grass sweeter and more appealing to cattle. And in some soils, salt keeps rust from wheat and blight from potatoes. And when applied, applied properly... Salt will kill the surface weeds while allowing more deeply rooted plants and grass to thrive. And when rain or irrigation allows salt to permeate the soil, it chemically frees vital minerals and nutrients in the soil, allowing them to nourish plants. When Luke records Jesus' words, in Luke chapter 14, he says salt is good, but if it's lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. It kind of helps it make a little more sense. A farmer can have, get ready for this, I know this is exactly what you expected on Sunday morning. A farmer could have a pile of manure, right? You don't have time to every time an animal poops, to gather it up and go take it and put it right into the soil. 
So a farmer could actually have a pile of manure that would be wonderful fertilizer once he is able to get it out and work it into the soil. Um, but it could also actually rot and decay. And so putting salt on the manure not only prevents it from decaying, but also enhances the aspects of fertilization in the manure. Church, we make poop more effective. That's not going to make it on a coffee mug. All right, lots of interpretations of what salt may be. Um, <clears throat> and there's probably good meaning and application. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't tell you to like narrow it down and say, yeah, but this is what he really meant. We want to we strive as much as we can, but I think let it, let it be generous in our interpretation, flavor, pers uh, preservation, purification. But here's the thing about, the, especially when we see salt through the, through the lens of what it was primarily used for in the Middle East, which is fertilizer, here's the thing that I think is important for that. The purpose of being fertilizer <clears throat> is that the better the fertilizer, the more everything that it impacts thrives. The better the fertilizer, the more fertile the soil. The better the fertilizer, the more flourishing for the plants, the better the world around it. Fertilizer doesn't exist for its own glory. It exists for the benefit of the earth around it. It makes other things better. And when fertilizer goes bad or loses its potency, it doesn't cease to be fertilizer. What suffers is the impact it has on the beauty and the thriving of the world around it. One thing to be sure, we can debate the meaning and we can look at all that, but one thing to be sure, salt was very valuable, salt was very useful on a multitude of ways, it was a prized possession for any household, but the point is how much and in what ways the salt impacted the world around it. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Don't put light under a basket. Don't put a lamp under a basket. That's bad. It's a fire hazard. Put it on a table. Let your light shine so that others may see your good works and stand in awe and wonder of the glory of God. This is, this is pretty straightforward. Um, but also in Jesus' day, this was a much more familiar metaphor for God's people. The people of Israel had always, they had a familiar understanding of what it was to be light. They were to be a light to the nations. Light throughout the Old Testament, light is always given as uh, the meaning given to light is knowledge, truth, the revelation of God and his law and his love. And God's people all throughout scripture were to be a light to the nations around them displaying and conveying and showing forth God's greatness and his goodness and his mercy. Isaiah 51 says that when God's instruction goes out, his justice will become a light to the nations. And the people would look at Israel 
And they would awe and wonder, who is like the God of Israel? But for a light to be effective, it has to be seen. Right? Jesus exhorts his followers to do good works and do them so that they may be seen and to give glory to your Father in heaven. But, but, Jesus will also caution in just a couple of pages, be careful when you do your works before others that it's not for your glory. So we may go, well, okay, so when are we supposed to do good works? We're supposed to do them when we're in front of other people or when we're not in front of other people? Can we post them on Facebook or can we not post them on Facebook? Jesus doesn't necessarily tell us when to do them and not do them, but he tells us why. When we do them for our own glory, we have received our reward in full. And what's great is God also receives his glory. When we do them for the glory of God, it is to be a light to the nations, to the people and to the world around us, putting on display what is taking place in us. We do them because God has been gracious and generous and kind and compassionate and shown mercy and healing to us. And when we put that on display, we bear witness by becoming the blessing and presence of God to the world around us. We've, we've said this before. The mission of followers of Jesus is not to win the world for Jesus. It is not to coerce the world. It is not to force the world. It is to bear witness in word and in deed to the hope of the resurrection of Jesus and this new coming kingdom of hope and redemption. Salt and light are both elements that have an impact on the world around them. They function in different ways. They're both very valuable, and they're valuable for the impact they have on their environments. And again, they don't coerce by violent force. They don't manipulate the world around them through deceitful tactics. They immerse and connect as agents of impact and change. And they are both given, in their right ways, they are given to impact the world for better. Now again, we can debate the exact precise interpretation, something I think Jesus probably would not find a whole lot of delight in. Nevertheless, we blog about that endlessly. But I think we would miss the point. And I think getting a, a, a good and accurate understanding is important. Don't hear me saying that it's not. But I think what the bigger deal is, is um, <clears throat> the mission of God's people is that we make this impact in the world around us toward flourishing, toward growth, toward righteousness and justice. And it needs to be said, because this sounds great, right? Who wouldn't want flourishing? Who wouldn't want thriving? It is not always well-received. It is not always welcome. We, in our sinful hearts, we put a lot of stock into the kingdoms of this world. So here's my concern, <clears throat> and then we'll, we're going to walk through what, how do we, what does this look like on a practical level. Here's my concern. We live in a world, American culture is built on results and numbers and productivity. Our validation comes by how effective we are, right? Numbers means you must be right. 
must be on to something. Um, and if we're not careful, and when we're not careful, and because at times we have not been careful, the mission of God's people gets confused with productivity. And we can be taught really, really effective ways to share a gospel that we're not actually experiencing. We can have really clever ways of telling people about a Jesus that we really don't know. Because it's effective. We have a technique or a quick fix where we get the C that is the answer to the A plus B. And I think the call to proclaim through word and deed the hope of the gospel is actually so much more than that. I think we are calling, our calling is to proclaim a gospel that is actually radically changing us. And as it is changing us, we put that on display through word and deed to the world around us. So what does that mean? <clears throat> this passage is not a separate thing from the Beatitudes, all right? We don't, we don't get through the Beatitudes, hard stop, move on to the next topic. This flows. This is all part of the same thing. Um, so I think this is a continuation for those who are experiencing the good news of God's blessing on this list here, this is the impact that God's work in us, among us, and through us has on the world around us. This is what it is to embody salt and light. So how do we live that out? How do we resist becoming useless? I think we press into the Beatitudes. What is ours through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus? So the last few weeks when we've gone through the Beatitudes, I've, how is this good news for you? And I think we press in to, to living that out. When we experience poverty of spirit or material poverty, we get a taste of my hope is not found in the kingdoms of this world. But in Christ, the kingdom of God is already mine. And so in our humility and our humble estate, in our heart and mind, we experience the hope of the kingdom. When we look around and we see the world around us and the brokenness and the, and the systems and, and we grieve and mourn of how the kingdoms of man wreak havoc on this world and on our own lives, we experience when we're in that and, and we get a taste of the good news of God's comfort, that we don't have to look for coping mechanisms, distractions, ways of self-medicating, but we actually experience God's comfort. And as God's comfort begins to seep in to us and settle in, then we become meek and surrendered, but not hopeless. Meekness is not a position of weak. It is a position of, of being surrendered. That we no longer have to pursue meaning, value, and worth in the incomplete methods and coping mechanisms of this world. And we don't have to seek vengeance 
or retaliation because our inheritance is full. Our inheritance is the world around us. And so we're no longer filled with, with vengeance. Or we begin to let that go. We become grounded and surrendered and steadied. And then, as we continue and survey the shame and hurt in ourselves and in the world around us, and it produces in us a hunger and thirst that the world would be made right and that I would be made right, as we look and we see injustice at our own hurts, at the hurts of others, at the hurts maybe that we have caused, when people are left out, when symptoms are stacked against us or against other people, when evil people seem to thrive and the righteous seem to go hungry, we become more salt and light as that deep hunger in our souls for the world to be made right gets a hope of this one day. One day Jesus is going to make the world right. And whereas we labor for that and long for that, we are also settled that we can't force it and that one day Jesus will accomplish it. And it's satisfying. And it fills us with a sense of humble confidence that we don't, we're not presumptive in our thinking that God's, one day God's going to return and take up our cause, right? But that we, we're not asking if God's on our side, we're asking if, if I'm on God's side and experiencing the deep satisfaction of that. And then that begins to move, and this is where we really start to see the fertilizer at work. That satisfaction and the hope that one day God will make all things new and right then we can let go of things that we hold on to that say, yeah, but if I just had a little bit more of this, that would make things whole and right. And we can begin to let go of those things. And we can begin to show mercy to the hurting and the broken. Remember, mercy is not simply sympathy. It is actually the giving of ourselves, the giving of our stuff, of our presence, of our hope. All of that stuff we give away uh, toward healing, toward restoration, toward justice, which is restoration toward the hurting, the outsider, the broken. Because God has shown mercy to us, and all of a sudden we become a blessing as we experience that more and more. And as that happens, our vision gets refined. Our heart, a purity of heart, gets refined. We're no longer dual-minded people. I say we're no longer. We, lo, lo, lo longer. we re, still wrestle with it, I'm sure. But the purity of heart gets refined. The purity of heart is we're not two different people. We're not hypocrites. We're not putting on a show of looking how good and righteous I am and doing works to be seen by other. But in private, I'm really out for my own glory and I'm going to do this and I'm going to look good over here. I'm going to give my resume. And according to all you Christians, I look great. But really, inside, I'm this way. That clouds our vision of Jesus. But our hope both as we on our outside and our inside is Jesus, which gives us a pure vision and eyes to see God. And the hope of God for ourselves and for everything. And in seeing God, we bring him to bear, even in hostile situations, the peace of his presence. Not through violent techniques, not through indifference, not by going, hey, that's not my problem, but actually in spite of violent techniques. We bring the hope of reconciliation. But we bring the hope of reconciliation to a world that often wants to hold on to kingdoms of this world, like power or bitterness. Power in all its forms. 
And so we can bring the peace of God, which is not just the avoidance of conflict, but actually the presence of God as being peacemakers to bring the hope of reconciliation and not to simply pacify. It's not, hey, can't we all get along? But it's those with power. Are you willing to let go of that? Are you willing to use power for good instead of for you? And for those with hurt and bitterness, which is also a form of power, are you willing to forgive and let go? That's the call to be peacemakers. And you may or may not know this. Not everybody really wants to give up their power. Not everybody wants to give up bitterness. That's hard. And so sometimes that can produce persecution. As we till the soil and seek to right wrongs and seek to bring the kingdom of God to bear in issues of justice and righteousness and reconciliation and the hope of forgiveness, there are kingdoms of this world that just, well, every kingdom of this world does not want that. Even religious kingdoms, sometimes especially religious kingdoms. And sometimes we may face persecution in trying to bring reconciliation. And it's okay. Do you know why? Because the promise to the follower of Jesus as salt and light is that the kingdom of God is already ours. So we don't have to work to try to establish lesser kingdoms. We work with the hope, the self-forgetfulness, the, the lack of I need my kingdom, we can let that go. And so as this begins to work out in us and among us, as the Beatitudes begin to wreak havoc in our mind and souls to the glory of God, and we live that out to the world around us, I love what Jeremy said, yes, we pray and weep for Ukraine, for South Africa, for places where, for the Middle East, and for St. Louis, and for St. Charles, and for all, and for, man, can I tell you something? We begin to weep and pray for our neighbors who by earthly kingdom standards have it all, but are, and, and probably go to church 52 times a year, but are in spiritually dire situations. Because who needs Jesus when I have no problem covering my mortgage payment and I have no, I've never faced hunger, and I'm, never, and I'm good. Things are okay with me. Now, those people, those people need Jesus. That is spiritually dangerous. And we're called to be salt and light in all of these situations as this is at work in us, that we're we are given this to bear witness to the coming kingdom, that mankind could flourish and grow and become who we were, who we were created to be. And this is the mission of the gospel. And this is far more than just how do I get to heaven when I die. This is how do we bring heaven to bear here and now where we live. Rejoicing when it's received. Grieving when it's rejected. But never losing hope that one day with certainty, Jesus will bring his kingdom in its fullness and all things will be made right. That's our hope. 
That's why we can give up the kingdoms of this world. Cool? Yeah. Just go and do. Right? All right. Here's your practice for this week. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this in our GCs if you're in a small group. I want, I really just want us to get us thinking. And I say, sometimes I say things like, it begins to, or you begin to, or we start. And I always notice the things that I say, and I'm like, you may have already begun that. And that's glorious, and that's great. So as we continue to, all right? Um, but just as we continue to develop eyes to see, this is the question that I want you to ask in your mind as you go through your week. Where am I salt and light? Where am I salt and light? Not where do I need to be, but where am I salt and light? Think through your week. Who are the people that you come in contact with pretty regularly? Where are the places that you exist? Family, friendships, work, classes, school. What stores do you frequent? The barista, the parking lot attendant. The elevator attendant. I don't know if any of you have, some of you may be like high-priced attorneys. You get your own elevator. I don't know. I mean, I, I think, I, I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> right? The secretary. The checkout guy. God bless them. The people at the self-checkout who are just like, they're just like, stealing is going to happen. And being kind and scanning all of your products, all of your items in the self-checkout. Who are the people that you come in contact with? And bring this thought. What does the kingdom of God bring to bear to this person? To this system? To this office? To this community? To this family? What would God's presence bring to bear here? Not, how can I convert these people? What does it look like for the kingdom of God to just be ushered in? To bear witness. And then, and this is all, this is all the same question. I said one question. It's all the same question. How am I a part? How am I participating in that? Not like, how can I be perfect so that everybody thinks God is perfect? God does not need you to be perfect. I'm going to tell, I want to tell a real quick story. This is, this is total, is anybody in a hurry? You know what? Your brackets are ruined. Mizzou's out, and by God's grace, so is Kansas, so like we're all good. Um, all right, so I'm, gonna, I'm just going to, this is, this is real quick. Uh, Jesus Revolution. Actually, I saw it, and, I, and I, I actually really liked it because I thought it was, it was pretty honest. It's the story of Chuck Smith. I'm not going to spoil it for you. Um, Lonnie Frisbee, controversial figure in, in church history. 
Lonnie, Lonnie Frisbee was a broken man. God used him to start a revolution. And like happens, what sometimes happens with, especially with broken people that God uses in a big way, is you experience, you want for that. Like the, the want for Jesus is kind of con, con, convoluted with this want to see this massive movement. It can become a new drug. And I think that happened for Lonnie. And they show the picture of Lonnie and his first wife, Connie, which is beautiful, right? Lonnie and Connie. And, um, but to make the movie, they did not ask Connie, and it might be because they didn't know if she was still alive, and she presumes the best, but they didn't ask her about her experience in this Jesus revolution that happened, the Jesus movement that happened um, in, in San Francisco. And so she, somebody interviewed her and called her, and this is what she said. She said, I know when we make movies, we want to make things nice and neat and tidy. And, and we want to make kind of, you know, the good, good guys and the bad guys. But it wasn't nice and neat and tidy. People are messy. The kingdom of God is messy. And she still loves Jesus. She and Lonnie did not stay together. They were married six months when this whole thing happened. And you talk about pressure on a marriage. But here's what she said. She said, if they would have made, the, if they would have made this movie a little bit more historically accurate and shown the brokenness of everybody. She said, I wouldn't have looked good. Chuck Smith wouldn't have looked good. Greg Laurie wouldn't have looked good. Lonnie wouldn't have looked good. You know who would have looked good? God would have. Isn't that a great testimony? How am I a part not how am I perfect. Not how do I hide my sinfulness so that, I can, so that I can be effective. In all of the messiness of your life, the victories and the struggles, how am I a part? How do I get to participate in being honest and hopeful and longing and desperate and surrendered? How am I a part in bringing to bear God's kingdom here? Salt and light. And I want, just go through your week. Let it, especially the parts that you're, you tend to ignore. You're sitting at a stoplight and people are pulling in front of you. Look at them. Look in their eyes. I love just like, I wonder what's going on in that guy's, you know. And then some people are like, yeah, I know what's going on with that guy. I hear you. Just see. How is the kingdom of God made known here? All right? Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, thank you that you are at work in us, in spite of us. You come proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God to the poor, to the, to the grief-stricken, to the surrendered, to the hungry. You come and proclaim good news. The kingdom of God is here, and God's presence and blessing is with you. There is never a prerequisite, in fact, th that we have our stuff together. In fact, it appears as if the prerequisite is if we are totally aware of how much we don't have our stuff together, that we need a Savior. So as you work in us, I pray you would work through us and make yourself known. It's messy, it's complicated, it's not black and white. 
It's hard. Should I do this? Should I show more love here or more truth here? Should I, what, what do I do? And, and I don't always have the answers for that. Make yourself known in us and through us for your glory. And may we rejoice that one day, one day the world will flourish because you will come and make all things new. And may we work with humility, but also with that level of confidence. Our hope is not in vain. Our salt is not in vain. And our light is not in vain. And we ask this all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.